My friends, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I was a tour guide in college, and you got paid $10 a tour. So it was actually a pretty good job. You only got $9 for working in the library. Um, It was seen as combat pay, though, for people that just asked a ton of questions. Um, I saw tour guides as people who just walked around telling stories. And I'll tell you a little something about college tour guide culture, if you didn't realize. At least half of what they tell you on a tour is a lie. Um, or or a, a, um, an incredibly colorful misrepresentation of factual information. All the stories about the 1800s or the 1900s or um, amazing things that happen in dorm rooms. Um, sometimes they even make up graduates. That's harder now with devices because people can sort of check you in real time. But I couldn't believe you could be paid more money for like lying as you walked than working in a library. So I became a tour guide. Um, (laughs) And I just have to say, I loved it. Um, I loved the evangelism of being a tour guide. Um, This was Harvard College, and most of the people on your tour were actually not prospective students, but were people that just wanted a tour of the place. But I got to know every corner of the university, and every couple of weeks I would go pull out a book um, to learn something new to kind of, you know, one-up other tour guides, you know, that I just had more stories about more places. So over the course of four years, I learned all these different uh, things about parts of the university. My tours were like two hours. I mean, it was just like around Harvard Yard, and we'd somehow wind up almost in Baltimore, and I was always looking for places to share more stories. And one of the things that you do somewhere on the tour is is you stop at a motto of the college that was founded in 1636. And the motto of the college, so I was told, was Veritas. Um, There's a school in uh, New Haven, um, the name is escaping me, but um, uh, um, I know their motto is looks at Veritas. So there are many schools that have the word veritas in it. And for those of you who are not Latin scholars, veritas means truth. So for about two years, I was giving the tour, and I would stop wherever I saw the motto and say that this was the motto of the college since the 17th century. But one day I was at band practice. And at band practice, we were in what's called Sanders Theater, which is this this beautiful, um, sort of like the Globe Theater where we had um, practice on Fridays for football games on Saturday. And um, I was helping them move the timpani, right, which were those big sort of eggshell drums. Um, So I was in the back and and was moving around, and I saw literally behind pieces of of theater equipment and ladders um, what looked like a, a shield of the college. And as I moved the timpani away, I saw there was a different motto on it. And the motto was, Veritas, Christo et Ecclesia. And I just just looked at this motto. So the next day I went to the the marshal's office, which is in the president's office, and I just rushed in and just said, I, I wanted to know the truth about the mottos. And they said, oh yes, that was the motto 
Um, but we've, uh, we've covered it over in most of the university, but you found the one that is still there. Um, I found this to be a big difference. Those of you again, it's a little late in the afternoon for Latin. Um, uh, uh, it's a purpose clause. Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae is truth for the purpose of Christ and the church. So a little more reading, and I found out that that was the motto until the 1930s. And then it was completely changed. Anywhere in the university, it was taken down. For obvious reasons, we don't have to go into it now, why this happened. Um, the early 20th century was, a, was rough going for monotheism. The Holocaust had yet to happen to cut at the core of people's theological naivete about progress in the human community. Freud was ripping through not just curriculum about psychology or psychoanalytic theory, but philosophy, humanities. Is it all just wish fulfillment? Is everyone in the end really just seeking pleasure and avoiding pain? And Harvard, like any institution wanting international fame and funding, became very shy of the motto that had guided it for hundreds of years, which is that you, yes, are meant to seek the truth because the truth will set you free, but we don't just seek truth as an end in itself. Yes, there's a seeker on every Quidditch team, but they're supposed to find the snitch. If you're a seeker forever, you'll be replaced. You don't win in Quidditch unless your seeker is also a finder. And so much of the second two years of college to me was sort of uh, clouded, informed, guided by learning the story of that motto. That what really happened in the 20s and 30s and 40s is a university decided that seeking the truth was its own kind of freedom. But don't you dare find it. Because then you will be seen as an exclusivist. Perhaps a bigot. Perhaps finding the truth will close your mind rather than open it. I must also say, if you want to go home and do a Google image search, for hundreds of years, as the motto was Christo at Ecclesia, underneath it were three books on which Veritas was written. But you know something? If you go find this motto, the third book was face down. The first book was open that had V-E on it. The second book was open, R-I. And then the third book, can you picture it was down? And T-A-S, Veritas, the end. And it was a symbol of the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament, and the third book was face down because there are mysteries in life. A mystery isn't where your keys are. I visit that mystery often. <laughs> a mystery is seeing through the glass dimly. A mystery is an intentional lack of information because we have yet to see God face to face, to know fully as we are fully known. When they dropped Christo at Ecclesia, the third book was turned over. And the motto now is three open books. 
I searched. There are no minutes of board meetings for this change. Someday someone will write the story of this. Somewhere in the early 20th century, my alma mater decided it's all in the books. There's what you know and what you don't know yet. There is always a problem when you find the truth. As Christians and believing in the incarnation, we of course speak of the truth finding us, entering human life, infusing all of creation. As C.S. Lewis speaks of the word of God, the logos as the hound of heaven. I have a new beagle puppy and I now get the whole hound thing. My lab is always just looking for love. My small beagle is looking for Veritas. <laughs> which may or might not have anything to do with me or Lisa. So as you begin this term, we're given this gospel today. This idea that it's in losing your life that you will find it. That there is something about death that is not only not an end, but it is the truth itself that we must die. Now I say that thinking of the teenagers that I interviewed years ago for a book I wrote on how teenagers find spiritual meaning in their lives. And in one of the chapters called Nap Time is Over, I asked the students all over the country to describe human life as they had experienced it. I did a lot of students in this area, but then went to Detroit and um, students in California, um, students in Florida, students in Maine. And I've come away thinking there's very few things you can say that doesn't take into consideration the vast differences of cultural context. But I will just tell you that the, the most common thing I heard, if, if they could say anything that was common among these groups, urban, rural, rich, poor, was that their view of humanity was jaded. That adults were not to be trusted. And that as many of them said, life is Lord of the Flies. As you know, Lord of the Flies is one of the most commonly assigned texts for middle school and high school in America and has been since it was published. How many of you have read Lord of the Flies? Oh, good. I mean, terrible, but good. <laughs> Somewhere along the line in the post-World War II era, this book, which was written in that same time period, uh, 1954, uh, it came out actually in May of that year. And it was seen as the truth, the waking up, the explanation of why we're going to search for Veritas, but not locate it in any one place, not dare to say we'd ever found it. Lord of the Flies came at just the right time for a world that was going through the trials of Nuremberg and said, do you want to know why that's happening? Here is a fable to explain it all, that once you get onto the island and you take the police or the chaperones or the adults or the teachers or the structures away and the uniforms the children had strip off and the war paint comes on, that if you just take the lifeguard away from the pool, you will find human nature. And Piggy winds up with his head on a stick. That's the truth. The rest of it is a kind of cultural, social experiment 
a contract, as they said in the 17th century, where we accept law to protect ourselves. It's a calculation of how much freedom you want versus how much threat you're willing to metabolize. That's why that book was assigned then. I just can't believe it's still assigned now. I had students across the country in so many different contexts all saying, Lord of the Flies was not fiction, it was a documentary. And sadly, many of them said, and I'm thankful for it. It explains the college process, the dating process, the not being cut from the musical process. That was May of that year. In September, thank goodness, another book came out. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. The world only had to sit in waiting. Long have we waited a few months after Lord of the Flies was published, and a Lord of the Rings shows up. I just wish that was assigned as much as Lord of the Flies. A world that is not based on, the, the Latin phrase is simple as well, every man is to another a wolf. No. There is war in the Lord of the Rings. Death, betrayal, pain, suffering that is impossible to understand. Oppression. Yet, in a fellowship where the weakest link is both priest and prophet, where hobbits save the world, that world, not a world that denies death, not the seed that falls and keeps its shell against the gospel teaching, but that is willing to die, the belief that in death we have resurrection. The consolation spoken about in the epistle. What is our consolation? We don't console each other in a competitive Darwinian experiment where we're living on an island where you could lose your own life so you have to protect it. Look what happens to Piggy. You can die anyway. You have this, this competing narrative, and I love in history that these two epics come out in the same year both of them in the wake of the Second World War. Two responses. I ask you today, which is yours? You know, we read these Gospels. You have to die to yourself, that that's where the life is. And you come to a seminary and we just assume that we've all bought into that. Let me ask you, how do you feel about dying? Whether it's your health, whether it's relationships, whether it's part of the world you've left behind when you came here. Voldemort is the most evil person you could read about. And the funny thing about him is he wasn't in it for the money or any kind of relationships. There was one thing that animated this super horrible villain. The fear of death. Anything to avoid death. Remember, he even wants... At one point in the war, remember, he wants not for any magical blood to be spilt. He actually values magical life. He's really only in it because he can't handle his own death. 
So I ask you, every teenager I interviewed had one form or another of the same comment. The adults around me are afraid to die. And they're giving me no way to think about the deaths I meet every day. In relationships, in opportunities, in grades. So I'm going to learn from the book I was given to read that it's up to me to save my own life. As an evangelist in our church, I will simply agree with Gandhi. Christianity would be a great idea. And what he meant by that is this idea that you really walk toward death, singing, even as I go to the grave, alleluia. Do we actually share, not just with young people, with ourselves in the mirror in the morning, that all the ways that you will die in seminary every day is your life unfolding, that there is abundant life, that the tomb is empty? Or have you fallen like a motto into something safe, inoffensive? That you're in it for the love and the community. And meanwhile, young people are watching us, asking, can I die? And if I do, in who I thought I was, in what I thought I could do, in all that the adults have helped me do, and when I fail, will my tomb be empty. The saddest part of the research of that book is even the church is whispering that although a Lord of the Rings world is every hymn we have, what people see us living is a Lord of the Flies fear. It is the beginning of the year. Our Jewish brothers and sisters literally started a new year. Let's borrow that hope today. Do not go into anything, anyone, any place in this seminary. Speaking of resurrection, in your metabolism of Voldemort, so afraid of death, you will split your own soul to keep it from breaking. I know why you do it. I know why I do it. I love the idea of the resurrection. It's the Holy Week that's rough. And I get to maybe Monday or Tuesday where all the teaching happens. And then when the Judas in me runs away afraid, I kind of get stuck on Wednesday and start making deals to keep my Jesus faith alive. Judas's great betrayal was not just of our Lord, but of his own resurrection. He couldn't get past the fear. So please, look around this room. We are in this moment together. Let's keep each other accountable. We heard a gospel that said, unless a seed falls, it will not live. Do not spend today, this week, this time at seminary, jumping off and making sure you catch yourself. You can't. We are your social safety net. This is a fellowship here. Like Tolkien's great story, where yes, there is death and betrayal, but there is life, there, courage, bravery, friendship. Friendship, who even in Greco-Roman culture, friendship was seen as the chief achievement of humanity. 
And then Jesus blesses that ancient wisdom. There is no greater love than this than to lay down your life for a friend. He says, you were called servants. I call you friends. So if you hear the gospel today and you want to be hearers and not just doers, in these kind of sermons you get that say, do you hear what I said? I'm asking you to look at one another. Are you willing to be a fellowship with the people in this room, to fight against a culture of flies and remember who the Lord of the flies is? Maybe you don't believe in Satan. That makes one of us. Listen to C.S. Lewis, who says the greatest thing you could do wrong is talk too much or too little about the devil. The second worst thing you could do is not really mention it at all. But we don't renounce nothing at our baptism. You renounce something real. So look around. We're a fellowship not just for what we say we want. We're a fellowship for what we have renounced. So say no to Voldemort tonight. Maybe this is your moment. When you come up for communion and, and you have that moment where you are receiving the bread of life, that is your resistance, that is your defiance, that is your your decision that you are going to renounce in receiving Christ into your body, that you are taking the fellowship of the Trinity into you so that you can live into that triune life. But you must die to do it. The gospel talks about hating the alternatives. What that means is turn away from them. And welcome to an institution where we believe in truth, and we believe in finding it, and we believe in consuming it, and we believe in being it. Look in the mirror tomorrow morning when you start your day and quote the word of God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. Begin your day declaring that your life was drowned. Every sin and brokenness in the font. It is no longer I who live. Let's do that as a fellowship tomorrow morning. That will be the way you preach on the gospel tonight, that unless we fall, we will not rise. I love this fellowship, you weird-looking, hairy-feet hobbits, all of you. I would rather battle for light in Middle Earth with everyone in this room than be all dressed up on some island where I'm in charge of my own safety. I am jumping off this pulpit into the fellowship with you and Christ. Let's look in the mirror tomorrow morning and remind ourselves the life you're trying to protect is gone. Don't you try to resurrect that old person. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Amen.